For journalists all over the world, reporting true crime stories is a day-to-day -day reality. But what do journalists do when that reality is so dark that it feels like we've reached a new depth of human cruelty? For the first time, a network of 600 of these journalists have invited us into the darkest recesses of their world. They've shared stories of some of the most disturbing cases ever reported, past and present. From Podomo and Vespucci, this is The Darkness Vaults. A note to listeners. Due to the nature of their subject matter, some stories discuss suicide, sexual assault, and may include detailed descriptions of violence. Please take care while listening. This time, I did it. On a late September night in 1978, a couple of tourists were driving near Del Porto Canyon in California. In the dark, you have to keep your eyes peeled on the yellow painted line as the road twists through rocky hills and bends come at you quick. Suddenly, something silver flashed on the road dead ahead and they had to slam the brakes. The couple couldn't believe their eyes it had been a while since they'd even passed another car, but standing here, in the middle of nowhere, was a girl. She was naked, blazing in the headlights, and the apparition was so shocking, it took a moment to see the desperate horror in her eyes, and to register the true nature of the emergency. The girl had had her arms held above her head, but in fact, there were no arms, just bloody stumps below the elbow. She'd been hacked to pieces, and she was still alive. Mary Vincent was 15 when she ran away from Las Vegas. Her mother was a blackjack dealer, and her father repaired slot machines, and Mary didn't mind taking a gamble on the cars that sped along the highway between her hometown and California. She'd trained as a ballerina and always wanted to be a dancer, and part of being an artist was to take chances. Even the neon lights of Vegas could become monotonous, and sticking your thumb out on the side of the road was a way to escape. Out on the highway, you were plugged into a circuit that ran all over the continent, a world of risk and experience. The school year had just started when Mary took off, in September of 1978. She wanted to visit a relative in Corona, California, not far from Los Angeles, but she was open to some detours along the way. The 15-year-old dancer, with her dark eyes, full cheeks and bright smile, packed a bag and hit the highway alone. By the 29th, she'd made it to Berkeley, California. It was morning, Mist hovered over the San Francisco Bay, and she was ready to head to her final destination. The city of Corona was just a straight shot down Interstate 5. In a white blouse, Mary walked along the side of the road, her thumb jutting out. Cars spat past in a swirl of exhaust, the eyes of the drivers fixed intently on the road, 
as if they were making a conscious effort not to see her standing there. Finally, someone in a blue van decided to stop. The van swerved to the roadside and trundled forward, and Mary caught up and jumped into the passenger's seat. Driving the van was a balding, middle-aged man with a wrinkled face, wild eyebrows and ears that stuck out like the handles of a jug. His name was Larry, and he was happy to help the 15-year-old hitchhiker. He said he had a daughter just about her age. They set off down the road together, the Californian day getting hotter as they went. Mary slouched in the seat and watched the world flow by. At her feet was a surveying rod, a long stick with a sharp end that could be driven into the ground to take measurements. Mary spanked a cigarette from her pack and lit up and the first ghost of smoke that rose into the air tickled her nostrils and made her sneeze. Larry asked if she was sick, and before she could react, he'd reached across the seat and was touching her neck, as a feeling for swelling or lumps. Mary recoiled from his touch and told him not to do that again, and he apologised. No harm was meant. She just reminded him so much of his daughter, and he was trying to show a fatherly concern. It was a long drive, and there was something peaceful and calm about how the grey highway rushed under the van. Soon enough, Mary fell asleep. It was hard to tell for how long, and when she awakened, something wasn't right. Asphalt is asphalt wherever you go, but somehow the angle of the sun was different. They weren't heading south toward L.A. They were going east, back to Nevada. Mary might have been young, but she'd been hardened by the road. She reached down and snatched the surveying rod and pointed its sharp end at the driver. She was ready to stab him if he didn't turn this van around and take her back south right now. Facing down the sharp end of the rod... Larry grew soft and apologetic. He was just an honest man, he said, who'd made an honest mistake. Obeying the girl, he did a U-turn and headed in the opposite direction. Mary realized she must have been asleep for a while as they'd drifted hours off course. Now it was getting late in the day. The golden light tilted and shadows lengthened on the rocky hills. In order to cut back across to her original destination, they started weaving along a slim, cramped road, no other cars in sight. The van took the turn slowly, something almost hypnotic about the twists, as they made their way past Del Porto Canyon. Deep into this snaking journey, Larry said he had to pee. They were out in the middle of nowhere now, and who knows how long a drive it would be to the next gas station. The middle-aged man with the wrinkled face got out of the car and shuffled off to relieve himself in the scrub. And Mary took the opportunity to stretch her legs. It had been a long, hot and aimless day, and she could hardly wait to get to Corona. With a yawn, she noticed the lace of her tennis shoe was undone and bent down to tie it up. 
And that's when it happened. A furious blow to the back of her head. Mary had no time to shield herself as the punch came a second time and a third. As if trying to grind her into dust, Larry was upon her, his concrete fists raining down. She was dazed, bewildered. It was all happening too fast, and before she knew it, he'd bound her hands behind her back. It all unfolded in the silence of the hills. Larry tore open her blouse. He forced himself on her, his apologetic fatherly voice transforming into a monstrous growl. If she didn't obey him, he said, she was dead. Then he dragged her into the van and slammed the door. He drove a little further along the canyon's edge, then found another silent place to park and climbed into the back where Mary lay, frightened and confused. He unbound her hands and took out a plastic jug filled with some kind of liquid. When he unscrewed the cap, the pungent fumes of alcohol swarmed the van. He forced her to drink. The booze went straight to her head. Her mind began to swim. Again, Larry tied her up and attacked her. The world went dark in the dark back of the van. Mary lapsed into unconsciousness, buried by the terror and destroyed by the booze. Larry pulled her from the van and told her to lie down on the side of the road. They'd stopped by a railing overlooking the canyon. Down below, a concrete culvert carried the water of a creek. Naked and bleeding on the roadside, Mary realized that her only hope was to beg. She pleaded with Larry to set her free, but somehow the sound of her voice only inflamed his rage. You want to be free, he said. I'll set you free. He returned to the van and fished around for something. And when he came back out, she saw the hatchet in his hand. Mary squirmed and kicked and struggled, but she was no match for his strength. Larry held her down and raised the hatchet, and with three savage strokes, he hacked her left arm off just below the elbow. The severed veins shot blood across the sand and her screams vanished into the void of the canyon below. And then, with just two strokes, Larry chopped her right arm away. Okay, he said. Now you're free. He hoisted her naked body, blood spurting from the stumps, and hurled her over the railing. Mary landed in the culvert and fell unconscious, and in another minute, the blue van started up and left her for dead. There was no way she'd survive. With every passing second, Mary was losing blood from two enormous wounds. Soon the smell would circulate, pricking the noses of the creatures of the night. By morning, she would be ripped apart by coyotes and then picked over by the circling vultures until she was nothing but bone. It would have been easy for the girl from Las Vegas to calculate her odds and surrender. 
close your eyes and let the dark take over. But somehow, when she finally awakened, naked and alone, she clung to the slimmest of chances. She managed to stand. She couldn't climb back up the slope, but she could follow the culvert. She raised her arms, trying to keep the muscles from falling out around the jagged ends of bone. For three miles she walked, her strength ready to give out at any moment, until finally she heard it, a sound like rushing water in the distance. It was the freeway. She followed it until she stumbled onto the road. Soon some headlights appeared in the distance, and this hitchhiker without thumbs waited for it to stop. But when the driver saw the terrifying condition of the girl, they pressed the gas and sped past. That's when the tourists came around the bend. They hit the brakes and helped the girl into the car. All they had to offer were some linens, but they wrapped Mary's savage amputations as best they could and floored it to the nearby airport. They did not exchange many words on the way. Mary Vincent was never supposed to live. She was not meant to survive losing that much blood. She was not meant to have the strength to walk out of the canyon, and she was certainly not meant to remember everything so clearly. Lawrence wasn't just surprised. He was completely enraged when police came to arrest him. The description Mary gave the police was so accurate that when the sketch of her attacker was publicised, a housewife in San Pablo, California, immediately recognised the face of her neighbour. Lawrence Singleton was a retired sailor from the Merchant Marines, originally from Florida, and now living peacefully on Flannery Road in San Pablo, a curving street of quiet bungalows. The people on Flannery couldn't believe that their private and unassuming neighbour, who only seemed to become animated at the bowling alley, could be responsible for the gruesome rape and mutilation they'd been reading about. But then, the similarity was undeniable. His face damningly captured in the charcoal strokes of the police sketch. Lawrence was charged with kidnapping, attempted murder and rape. And when it came time for his trial, the prosecution's key witness was none other than Mary Vincent. The intervening months had been a living hell for the 15-year-old. The fact that her dreams of becoming a dancer were dashed was now the least of her problems. She'd been outfitted with prosthetic arms with hooks on the end and had to relearn how to do everything. Every night she gasped awake from a nightmare she hadn't imagined, a nightmare she'd actually lived, the hot weight of the man on top of her, the hatchet hacking down. But at the trial... Mary called upon whatever superhuman strength had got her out of the canyon. She faced her would-be killer. She called him by his name. She pointed at him for all to see. Lawrence insisted upon his innocence. The girl had it all wrong, he said. Yes, Larry had raped her and chopped off her arms, but he wasn't Larry. According to him... 
he'd picked up multiple hitchhikers, one of whom had the same name. They all drank together, and Lawrence passed out, and it was while he was unconscious that the girl's ordeal began. He felt sorry for her, and even that was generous. Mary had threatened him with false accusations and said she was going to destroy his life. She was, in Lawrence's words, nothing more than a ten-dollar-a-night whore. If he was guilty of anything, it was a drinking problem and being nice enough to stop to pick up all these troublemakers. No one believed him, and his lack of remorse only offended the court. But despite being convicted on all charges, Lawrence Singleton wasn't given an especially long sentence. To the shock of many, he was given just over 14 years, and even that term could be shortened by good behaviour. It was the maximum sentence allowable under California law, but the judge said that if it was up to him, Lawrence would never see the light of day again. After the sentence was read and the guards were leading him off, Lawrence passed by Mary. Even though his arms and legs were in chains, he still found a way to terrify the girl. In a whisper only she could hear, he told her, I'll finish this job if it takes me the rest of my life. He'd only been there a couple of days when the mayor stepped in. Pinole, California is a small city on San Pablo Bay, a quiet place for commuters from San Francisco to lay their heads at night. But no one was sleeping easy when the news broke that Lawrence Singleton would be settling there. It was April 1987, eight years after his conviction, and he was free. Just after five o'clock in the morning, the first light dawning in the sky, he walked out of San Quentin prison and started looking for a home. But word of his release had already gone round and petitions had started circulating, objecting to him serving out his parole in certain counties. In Contra Costa County, which includes the city of Pinole, some 47,000 residents signed a petition against Lawrence living there. Just two days after his arrival, the mayor of Pinole told newspapers that the ex-convict would be ejected by any means necessary, even if it meant calling in the National Guard. I don't want this guy in our town for 30 seconds, the mayor declared. Everywhere Lawrence went, he was met with community outrage, picketing crowds and organised resistance. It was so intense that law enforcement could no longer guarantee his safety if he attempted to settle somewhere in California. But he couldn't live outside the state during the term of his parole. The only safe place for him was back where he'd made his home for the past eight years. San Quentin. The state provided him with a trailer on the grounds of the prison, and the man who'd just emerged from behind bars returned to the place of his captivity. For the next year, he stayed in the trailer, obeying a curfew and living under the watchful glare of the guards. 
It was better than prison, but it wasn't really freedom. And in Lawrence's view, he'd earned his freedom. The original sentence had been over 14 years, but he'd doggedly worked to reduce it. While in prison, he joined Alcoholics Anonymous and kicked his drinking habit, and he'd put in countless hours working as a teaching assistant. With painstaking effort, he'd shaved month after month from his sentence, reclaiming his life from the hell of San Quentin. And now, these picketing crowds were saying it wasn't enough. Whatever happened to second chances? Whatever happened to forgiveness? The public's reply was that you couldn't forgive a man for something he refused to admit he'd done. All through those eight years, Lawrence had maintained his innocence, still touting the notion that he'd somehow been framed for the crime. In fact, he'd taken it further than offering a defence. He'd gone on the offensive. Lawrence audaciously sued his victim, Mary Vincent, claiming she'd forced him to kidnap her for the purpose of robbing him. The suit was immediately dismissed, but it illustrated the depths of self-delusion Lawrence had sunk into. According to the district attorney who'd prosecuted him, every day in prison, Lawrence acquitted himself in his mind. He really believed he'd done nothing wrong. When the term of his parole was over in 1988, he could go wherever he liked. Lawrence left the trailer and went as far away as he could. His home state of Florida. The fact that he was roaming the country, no longer under police supervision, kept his victim, Mary Vincent, up at night. She was living in the Pacific Northwest and had been having difficulties in the years of Lawrence's imprisonment. She'd had trouble fitting in at a school for the disabled, and after graduation, she fled to the Pacific Northwest, where she sometimes relied on welfare and collected payments from Social Security. Mary became anorexic and didn't like leaving the house. But even in seclusion, she didn't feel safe. After Lawrence was released, Mary started receiving harassing phone calls and friends reported seeing someone of Lawrence's description in her neighbourhood. She bred large Neapolitan Mastiff dogs for protection. Then, things went from bad to worse. In 1995, Mary was paid $15,000 to tell her story on TV. And this paycheck meant that she no longer qualified for public support. Eventually, she found herself living in an unheated garage, her prosthetic limbs needing repair but she had no money to fix them. And still, she was haunted by the possibility that her attacker would return. When Mary expressed her fears to law enforcement, they were dismissive. Lawrence was old, they told her. His time was over. Give it a rest. But she could never forget those words he'd spoken at the trial. I'll finish this job. Mary might be able to hide from him forever, but what about others? Who else might stick out their thumb 
and have that friendly stranger offer them a ride. It was February 1st, 1997, and a father and son were walking home through the quiet streets of Orient Park. This was a suburb in East Tampa of Florida, with flat bungalows, leafy trees, and fences overgrown with vines. But what the father and son saw shattered the calm of their tropical neighborhood. An old man was slumped over the wheel of his van, and white foam was oozing from his mouth. They ran to help, and when they tore open the door, the gassy fumes hit them in the face. A dryer hose had been attached to the exhaust pipe and fed into the body of the van. The old man's breathing was shallow. He was nearly dead. And now the father and son recognised him. It was Lawrence Singleton, and he'd tried to kill himself with carbon monoxide. They managed to get him to a hospital, and luckily they hadn't been too late. Lawrence was soon breathing normally. The news of Lawrence's suicide attempt rocked his neighbourhood in Orient Park. Since moving there in the late 1980s, Lawrence had become a solid member of the community. He took excellent care of his house, always renovating and improving it, and he was a conscientious neighbour. He would bring people extra stakes or fix their broken mailboxes. When his cat walked over one neighbour's car, Lawrence apologetically washed the whole thing. He was a regular at the Brandon Crossroads bowling alley, where he'd stop around midday, knock down some pins, and then knock back a beer at the snack bar. That meant he was drinking again. But nobody in the neighbourhood knew about his previous struggles with alcoholism. In fact, they didn't know much at all about Lawrence's life before arriving in Orient Park. Unlike those furious crowds that plagued him in California, the people here gave him space to define himself. They knew he'd been convicted for something and served time in San Quentin, but Lawrence was adamant that he'd been the victim of a frame-up. Following the suicide attempt, Lawrence was committed to St. Joseph's Psychiatric Care Centre, where doctors drafted a statement that he posed a threat of substantial harm to his own well-being. But despite their concern, Lawrence was allowed to check himself out of their care on February 10th, not even two weeks after being found frothing at the mouth in his van. He returned to his bungalow in Orient Park and set his mind on home improvement. He'd recently had some painting done on the place, and on February 19th, a cloudy Wednesday, he worked on installing a new drain pipe. If any neighbour noticed him that day, Lawrence would look like his old self, just minding his own business, a calm concentration on his old wrinkled face. And when the work was done, Lawrence had some drinks, got in his van, and went for a drive. Roxanne Hayes was on her way to the grocery store when she decided to look for one last client. A pretty, dark-featured woman, Roxanne said she sold sex for two things, diapers 
and rent. Today she needed groceries to make dinner for her three kids, and a little extra money might help afford the good cuts of meat. So she walked the street for a while, hoping a John might swing by and put some dollars in her pocket. Sure enough, it was her lucky day. An old guy in a van trundled up alongside, and she got in. He didn't want to do it in the car, and didn't want to go to a motel. Instead, he wanted to bring her back to his place. That was a little unusual, and normally, Roxanne would say no. But for one thing, he was just an old man, and for another, she was in a hurry. Not long after, the painter stopped by Lawrence Singleton's place. He'd recently helped Lawrence with some renovations, and was just coming by to check on him. Rumor had it that the old man had been in the hospital lately, even that he'd tried to kill himself. But when he knocked on the door, nobody answered. The van was parked in the driveway, so the painter glanced in the window, and suddenly all the breath went out of him. There, on the living room floor, Lawrence was throttling a woman. Both of them were naked, and there was a terrible determination in the old man's eyes. The painter ran for a phone and called 911, saying that something awful was going down in Orient Park. Cruisers were dispatched to the scene, and when they swerved up at the bungalow and knocked on the door, Lawrence came staggering out. He reeked of booze, and blood was slathered across his chest. The officers asked him what happened, and he said he'd cut himself while chopping vegetables. Suddenly, the phone rang inside the house, and the drunk old man went to answer it. Without him standing in the doorway, the officers could see right into the living room. A woman was lying on the floor. They charged inside and found Roxanne Hayes swimming in a pool of blood. The mother of three had been stabbed 12 times, including once straight through the heart. She was dead. Mary Vincent, whose arms he'd hacked off on the roadside, always said that Lawrence Singleton was a threat. Despite his years in prison, he'd always vowed that he'd finished the job. Mary had survived, but that was never part of Lawrence's plan. With Roxanne, he'd been able to see his vicious urge to its fatal conclusion. As police led him into jail, reporters rushed forward asking for a comment. They framed me the first time, Lawrence told them. But this time, I did it. From Podimo and Vespucci, this is The Darkness Vaults. A new episode every week, wherever you get podcasts. For early access to episodes and to listen ad-free, subscribe to Podimo UK on Apple Podcasts.